See, Jesus did not get crucified because he said, I love you. He got crucified because he said things like calling Herod a silver fox. He got crucified because he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He told them that they were of the, their father, the devil, because they were. Today's passage is Acts 21, 21 to 36. Acts 21, 21 to 36. I think this is a very interesting passage uh, because it ties into earlier in the chapter. Remember, people were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. And he was determined that he was going to go to Jerusalem because he felt strongly compelled to go there. And so we're going to see some of the results of that decision as we open the word today. But before we do that, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask you to be here with us today. Lord, we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the power of redemption. Lord, I, I do thank you for the opportunity to tell stories of redemption on your podcast, on my podcast, it never ceases to amaze me the way that you reach into people's lives and change them. For you said, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And we thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name, amen. So, here in Acts chapter 21... We're going to read about challenges in Jerusalem. There's a real ebb and flow in Paul's life, is there not? He has great victories and then he has great struggles, but God is with him through them all. So let's read the first few verses here, Acts 21, 21 to 26. And in those verses we read... Well, let's back up to 20 just to give context. And when they heard it, this was Paul glorifying God for his work among the Gentiles. And he's talking to the, to the Jewish believers in the city. It says, And when they heard it, they glorified God and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And, and they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles, to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee, we have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads. And all may know that these things whereof they are informed concerning thee, they are nothing but that thou keepest, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. 
as touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So we see here that that Paul is in a place where he is where he has a choice of what to do and he chooses to let these people know that he has great respect for the Jewish law. Now, Paul said in another in a in a passage which um, he wrote in one of his epistles he talks about becoming like those around him so that he can reach them for the gospel and I really think that this is a situation um, that is an example of this becoming all things to all men so that by some means he may save some we know from Paul's writings that he does not believe that the law or the sacrifice of the law saves. That's what the theme of the whole book of Galatians is. And as we dig into this, we will find some disagreement. Some people think that he was totally wrong to do this ceremony. Other people will think that he was trying to make inroads with the Jews and that it was not wrong because he wasn't placing salvific importance in it. And we'll, we'll look at those, those views. But for now, the situation is that the elders of the city who are in the church said, I, we think you should do this. And what MacArthur says about this is he talks about how ill-founded these charges are against Paul. It says, if Paul really opposed circumcision, why did he circumcise Timothy? You can look at Acts 16, 1-3 for that. And if he taught others not to observe the Jewish customs, why did he take, he take a Nazarite vow in Acts chapter 18? Further, the Judaizers' lies about Paul were contradictory. In Galatia, they falsely accused him of advocating circumcision. Galatians 5.11. Here in Jerusalem, they falsely accused him of abrogating it. So first they accuse him of requiring everyone to get it. Then they accuse him of not wanting anybody to have it. Like all invertent liars, they said whatever was expedient at the moment. It is hardly surprising that the children of the father of lies resort to lies. See John 8.44. Lies are one of the main ways Satan attacks the work of God. Believers should be slow to accept accusations against other Christians, particularly leaders. See 1 Timothy 5.19. Especially when such charges originate with opponents of the Christian faith. There are often grounded and legitimate criticisms of people that name the name of Jesus. But if the person that is making the claim hates Jesus, you better investigate the claim to make sure that it's true. Remember, the the leaders who served with Daniel couldn't find anything in his conduct that was wrong. 
And so they had to make up things. They had to make up a law so that Daniel would violate it so they could get him for violating the law. So let's look at a couple cross-references here. Romans 14, 4-6. Romans 14, 4-6. This is kind of a little bit of a treatise from Paul on how to approach the law, particularly the dietary laws. I think he was talking about how Gentiles and Jews could coexist together. Remember, Peter was told to rise, kill, and eat for not call unclean the thing that God called clean. And yes, he was preparing Peter to go to the Gentiles with the gospel, but I also think he was preparing Peter for the eventuality that if a Gentile brother invites you over for dinner and he serves you pork, don't refuse it. I'm of the mind, because of Peter's personality uh, that is outlined in the scripture, that he probably lived a kosher Jewish life for his life. But when he was invited to a Gentile Christian's household, he was able to eat non-kosher for that period. And as a matter of fact, when he was fellowshipping with Gentile brothers and he distanced himself from those Gentile brothers, when other Jews came around, Paul withstood him to his face and said, Peter, you are wrong. So let's look at Romans 14, 4 to 6 in that context. Romans 14, 4 to 6. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. So Paul is basically saying in this passage that whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you eat eat meat offered to idols or whether you do not, the, the point is that you give thanks to God and if something goes against your conscience, you don't do it. I think he goes into further detail about it as pertaining to meat offered to idols, don't ask about it. Sometimes once we know something, we are obligated to act on what we know. And so if we are convicted that we shouldn't eat meat offered to idols or or eat unkosher meat, then maybe we shouldn't do that. But we also should defer to our brethren. That's why I was talking about when a Jew would go into a Gentile's house, I think God was authorizing liberty for them to be able to eat together and not have to worry about the Jewish dietary law. But they were also given by God, and they were given for a reason. So we should not totally... Um, ignore them and say that they have no significance because God wrote them. So I think it's good for us to have that balance. Can we look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22? 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 22. 
For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews, to them that are under the law, and under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law is without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. So this is Paul talking about meeting people where they are. I'm reminded when I read this passage of Hudson Taylor, who when he went to minister to the Chinese, he was convicted that he needed to dress in their native garb. He needed to meet them where they were. And of course, who was the ultimate person who met us where we are? That was Jesus. There's nothing in scripture that would indicate that he wore anything different than a Jewish carpenter would have worn during that time period. He dressed and walked among us as a normal person, drawing us to himself and to the Father through him. That is an amazing testimony. And I believe that is what Paul is doing here when he is engaging in this Jewish testimony. People's, people say that there are indications that it could have been a second Nazarite vow for Paul. There's actually no mention of a animal sacrifice <clears throat> for this particular ceremony. So even though animal sacrifice was part of the Old Testament manifestation of this um, ceremony, we are not guaranteed that this ceremony involved animal sacrifices, but we do know, we do believe that Paul did not believe that this had any salvific significance. And one of the reasons that I believe this is because when we get into Acts chapter 22, he's going to give a bold declaration of his testimony and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't think he would be nearly as bold as he was if the thing that he was doing at this present time, was the wrong thing. I think that Paul was a peacemaker. You know, it's kind of interesting to me that the, there's a group of people that always say that they want tolerance. And they want love. They say love is love. But... They get angry and downright violent with anyone who tells them that they are not living correctly. Because the Bible says that if the world hated me, that was what Jesus said, they will hate you after me. No matter how loving we are to people, if they hate the truth, they will hate us for proclaiming it. If I had to choose only one verse in the entire Bible to summarize what Jesus expects of peacemakers, it would be Romans 12, 18. 
It's concise and comprehensive, perfect for peacemaking dummies like me. It says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Notice how realistic Paul was about waging peace. The condition, if it is possible, acknowledges that it is not always possible to make peace. Scripture is realistic about conflict and discord. Biblical peacemaking is neither sentimental nor naive. It addresses the harsh realities of brokenness and evil. Check out the entire passage, Romans 12, 17 and 21, to understand the full context of this important verse. Even our most sincere efforts may fail. Peacemakers aren't always peace achievers. This verse also affirms proactive peacemaking, if it is possible, as far as depends on you. Since making peace involves at least two parties, reconciliation isn't always possible. But the responsibility for taking steps toward peace always rests on us as individuals. We can't ignore it and we can't wait for the other party to come to us. We are repeatedly commanded to take the initiative in pursuing peace ourselves. And this is from the book Peace Catalysts, Resolving Conflicts in Our Families, Organizations, and Communities by Rick Love, uh, and it was published by University Press in 2014. So we continue on to the next section. We know that Paul has been making efforts, uh, made this effort uh, for to make peace. And now we're going to see um, some of the results of that as we continue on in our passage. Let's look at verses 27 to 30 of Acts 21. And when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up the people and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, and further brought Greeks also into the temple and have polluted the holy place. For they had seen before with him in the city Trophimish and an Ephesian, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And the city was moved, and the people ran together, and they took Paul and drew him out of the temple, and forthwith the doors were shut. So isn't it ironic that he's in the temple doing a Jewish ceremony, fulfilling a Jewish rite, and then they are trying to say that he is perverting the law and not doing the right thing as a Jew. I find that extremely ironic. But they did the same thing to Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus observed the Jewish um, festivals. He was there for Passover. He was there for other feasts. He was, he was a perfect fulfiller of the law, and yet they hated him. And so Paul knew not to expect any less. Began to stir up all the crowd means to throw the whole crowd into 
consternation. The Jews from Asia wasted no time in inciting the crowd. Stir up is the imperfect tense, which vividly pictures these ascetic Jews going through the temple crowd, stirring up one group, then moving on to stir up another. It is not difficult to see how, how it would not take long to ferment considerable consternation among the Jews in the outer court, uh, courtyard. These rabble-rousers were good at their evil endeavor, for, for these propagators of falsehood had a good instructor. Uh, the devil was their instructor, according to John 8.44. They attacked and seized Paul before the charge was made. The Jews stirred up an irrational, violent mob into a mixed-up situation where volatile, unstable elements came together to result in confusion. So you see here, especially in verse 30, that they have no idea what's going on. They just were moved and they ran together. How easy it is for people to riot. You know, a lot of times when we present Palm Sunday, the point is made that the same people that said Hosanna to the Son of David would later say crucify him. And yes, it may have been some of the same people, but the more I think about it, the more I wonder if a lot of those people that said Hosanna to the Son of David were sleeping when Jesus was dragged from trial to trial. Did you know that Jesus' trial was illegal because it took place at night? And because none of the witnesses could agree? And there's other reasons as well, but there was nothing legal about the trial. And some of these people may have thought they had a legitimate grievance against Paul. But there are many people, even in our world today, who wake up every day and ask themselves, what can I be angry about today? (laughs) They don't care what it is. They don't really stand for it or for the opposite of it. They just are glad to be angry. And they're glad to believe what somebody tells them. And I feel like that's what we're seeing in this passage. There's a comparison that can be drawn to what's happening to Paul right now in this passage. Let's look at Acts 6, 9-15. Acts 6, 9-15. And we'll see that his experience compares to Stephen. And the great irony of this is that Paul, who was then Saul of Tarsus, was one of the people in the mob that attacked Stephen. Can someone read from Acts 6, 9 to 15? Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, Arenas, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And they suborned men to possess the 
heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and scribes and came upon him and taught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So this mob is stirring people up and it says they suborned men. I don't know if you ever watch um, legal dramas, but I enjoy them. And one of the terms you hear often in Law and Order or a legal drama like that is you suborned perjury. Meaning you allowed someone to tell a lie to get the result that you wanted. Usually it's a lawyer getting in trouble for suborning perjury because they allow perjurous testimony even though they know it's perjurous. And this passage is telling us that they suborned men to lie about the Apostle Paul. They knew it was a lie. But they got men to tell lies about the Apostle Paul. And similarly, earlier in Acts chapter 6, they're getting people to lie about Stephen and to tell things that were not true. And of course, this ended at the end of Acts chapter 8 with the death of Stephen. And then Acts chapter 9, Saul is wondrously wondrously converted and changes his name to Paul because he's made a new creature. But there's another who had a similar experience to Paul, and that is his Savior, the Lord Jesus. Let's look at Luke 4, 24 to 30. Luke 4, 24 to 30. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you the truth, many widows were in Israel in the day of Elias, and the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine was through all the land. But unto none of them was Elias sent, save unto a city of Satan, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at that time of Elias, uh, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all that in that synagogue, and all that in that synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust them out of the city, and led them unto the brow of the head whereon that city was built, that they might cast him down headlong, but in passing through the midst of them with his way. Earlier in this chapter, Jesus is in the synagogue and he just got done reading Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 4, I believe. 
the first few verses anyway. And after he's done reading it, he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. And instead of glorifying God and being like, How wonderful that we get to be here to see the fulfillment of this. They go to drag him out and throw him off a cliff. But he passed through the midst of the crowd and went his way because his time had not yet come. See, there is a great cost for discipleship. There is a great cost for doing what's right. See, Jesus did not get crucified because he said, I love you. He got crucified because he said things like calling Herod a silver fox. He got crucified because he called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He told them that they were of their father, the devil, because they were. He got crucified because he was loving enough to tell the truth. Stephen got stoned because he was loving enough tell the truth. Paul got shipwrecked and beaten and whipped and stoned. Some even believe that he died and came back because he was loving enough to tell the truth. What did Paul say in his epistles? Knowing the terror of God we persuade men. Knowing the terror of God we persuade men. Here's a little bit um, of of a humor, his story about what can happen when we assume something that is not true. John was driving home late one night when he picked up a hitchhiker. As they rode along, he began to be suspicious of the passenger. John checked to see if his wallet were safe in the pocket of his coat that was on the seat between them, but it wasn't there. So he slammed on the brakes, ordered the hitchhiker out, and said, hand over the wallet immediately. The frightened hitchhiker handed over a billfold, and John drove off. When he arrived home, he started to tell his wife about the experience, but she interrupted him, saying, before I forget, John, do you know that you left your wallet at home this morning? That was from our daily bread, October 2nd. 1992. So I don't know if that's a true story, and if it is, I don't know if this frightened hitchhiker ever got his wallet back. But just a reminder to us not to jump to conclusions. The Proverbs tell us he who answers a matter before he hears it is a foolish man. It's a folly and a shame to him. So we need to make sure that we understand the whole truth before we draw to a conclusion. So our last 
section of scripture today is from Acts 21, 31 to 36, where we read about Paul's rescue from death. Because this mob is about to do away with him. It says, And as they went about to kill him, tidings came unto the chief captain of the band that all Jerusalem was in an uproar, who immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left the beating of Paul. So they see these officers and they stop beating Paul. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing, some another among the multitude. And when he could not know the certainty for the tumult, he commanded him to be carried into the castle. And when he came upon the stairs, so it was that he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. For the multitude of the people followed after, crying, Away with him. So we see a couple of things here. First of all, we see that this chief captain finds out there's an uproar in the city. His primary objective is not to rescue Paul, okay? His primary objective is to restore peace. Because any discord will reflect on him. And when they saw him, they saw his authority, so they stopped beating Paul. Paul gets a reprieve from someone who doesn't know or care about God. Because God can use anyone. What did the Proverbs also say? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And he turns it whithersoever he will. When you look at this scene, we see in verse 34, some cried one thing and others another. They didn't agree, did they? Because when you lie, you each make up different things. You ever seen a TV show where where two people are trying to cover something up, but they don't coordinate their lie. And so they say, they each say different things and try to convince you that that was what happened. That's what's happening here. They're each saying different things because they couldn't agree. He took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. From the Tower of Antonia, vivid scene. It was a heavily garrisoned... During the feast days, they had the potential for a riot, something any Roman officer would not want to occur on his watch and get that black mark on his record. So he was motivated and did not just briskly walk down to the confusion, but ran down. Uh, Let's look at Acts chapter 21, 10 to 13. Acts 21, 10 to 13. This will remind us how this is in effect a fulfillment of a prophecy. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hand and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, 
So shall the Jews in Jerusalem bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Look at the verse 33. Then the chief captain came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains and demanded who he was and what he had done. Fulfillment of God's prophecy through Agabus. John nineteen twelve to 15. John nineteen twelve to 15. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said, to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So we delivered them, uh, him over to them to be crucified. So this is just to bring out the fact that the Jews in Jesus' day said away with him, crucify him. So when the Jews here with Paul are saying away with him, they're not just saying get him out of the city. They're saying we want him dead. Anger is not rational. These people were so angry that they couldn't think clearly. Everything Paul had done was to make peace and to be a good man who met them where they were. But it wasn't enough for them because they were determined to see evil in Paul no matter what. We're going to close there, but I would just encourage you to think about this as we go through this week and to realize that if you are being hated, if you are experiencing discrimination of one form or another, it's probably simply because you have taken a stand for the Lord Jesus. Now we need to evaluate that. We need to ask ourselves, how did I handle that interaction? Because sometimes we think we're being persecuted for Jesus when really we're just being persecuted for being a jerk. So we need to make sure that we have our hearts right. But we need to realize that the world hates the truth. Men walk in darkness rather than life because their deeds are evil. So we need to expose evil. We need to walk in the light. We need to encourage others to walk in the light as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you preserved Paul over and over again in this book of Acts. How you continued to use him mightily until his time had come. And we pray that you would do the same for us, that you would use us mightily to reach others for the Lord Jesus, that you would go with us, that you would grant us peace, that you would make your face shine upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.